0: Three. Contra is friction.
1: Contra is Contra nuanced. Is nuanced. Contra, Contra is transgressive.
0: Is good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a
1: space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive.
0: Contra is texture. How are disabled artists, critics, and curators shaping the discourse about accessibility? In this episode of Contra, I talked to Emily Watlington about her work as a curator of disability arts, thought, and practice, particularly around audiovisual media, captioning and description, and access labor. I'm so excited to welcome Emily Watlington to the podcast today. Emily is an assistant editor at Art in America. And um, she was also recently a Fulbright scholar in Berlin and has worked as a curatorial research assistant at the MIT List Visual Arts Center. And we actually met. Um, a couple years ago through a course that she was teaching at the Department of Architecture at MIT. So welcome, Emily. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So I thought we could start by talking about your work as an art curator and art critic and the ways that you're bringing disability studies frameworks to that.
1: Let's see. Well, I guess... Uh, my first year of art school is when I um, first got Lyme disease and my health was at its worst and so I really like came to understand art at the same time I was understanding like how to navigate my body and like a new like inaccessible world and so to me those have like always gone hand in hand um, just in my own like upbringing and understanding of art. So like a lot of work I was doing as like a school freshman was about like as a person with sort of an invisible disability was like trying to make some of that um, visible like in the way I would navigate this convoluted campus to avoid stairs and things like this Um, and more recently but at that time I didn't really know anything about like disability studies or anything like that and more recently I've gotten to learn through so many like really interesting and important artists Um, about their work in a similar vein of what I was thinking about uh, as a freshman, although a little more, um, yeah, more, like, researched and part of a community that's been really rich. So, yeah, Um, in terms of concrete things I've worked on, I guest-edited a special issue of art papers on disability Mm -hmm. and the politics of visibility that Amy contributed to. Yeah, I mean, trying to always in my practice, like, lift up disabled voices by uh, highlighting artists who are working with this topic or are disabled. And uh, last year, I think it was last year, I wrote an essay on artists working with closed captions as a a medium. And I was really interested in how this was taken up, um, not just as like compliance, but as a sort of space for creativity and criticism. Um, And Yeah, also artists like Carolyn Lazard, who's trying to imagine sort of a new form of audiovisual media that is not just like, okay, we have an inaccessible media and then um, sort of an add-on that makes it accessible, which is the caption. Um, Or like Christine Sun Kim, who is dealing with how just silly it is to try to describe these abstract sounds in like a single word and all these funny captions that come out of that. Um, and I've been thinking more and more about how museums are, like, videos shown in museums are held to, like, lower accessibility standards than, like, on Netflix or at the movie theater, and how just sad that is. So
0: so who were some of the first disability artists that you came into contact with?
1: Yeah, um, I'd say Park MacArthur. I... Uh, helped curate a show at the list called an inventory of shimmers objects of intimacy in contemporary art that she participated in and it was like a just sort of collection of um various medical objects i'm remembering now that one of them was straws and this is before the straw ban controversies so that's really interesting but um yeah how these objects which we might consider sort of like um sterile or cold or actually used as objects of care.
0: When did you kind of come into contact with disability community or disability culture?
1: Yeah, I would guess it I think it's like mostly from having worked with Park and then another artist named Andrea Crespo who's autistic and we did a show um with him. I'll have to look up the date. I think it was twenty
0: sixteen. Hmm Mm -hmm. When I met you, you were organizing a course on um, disability and access and code at MIT. Do you want to say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, that was something I co-taught with my partner who's an architect. And I mean, it's just such a... I don't know. I think such a ripe field for architects to be working with. I mean, like talking with you and Shannon recently, and about, I mean, there's the problem of retrofitting and making things accessible, which were not built that way before the ADA, but then even still with all these new construction projects, there's things that might technically comply, but are not accessible in many ways, or... Um, there's the code. I mean, it, I think it's so important that it's strict because it helps protect people. But sometimes there can be sort of silly things that happen. Like Gabe, my partner, was dealing with how like the legal regulation for ramps and the the regulation for the slope of seatings in theaters are like a few degrees different, which makes These sort of like absurd scenarios for how how you might have to navigate a building that has both of these things. Um, But yeah, also code I think is taught to a lot of architecture students as like this is something you have to do, not like this is a place where you can do important and creative work. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, something I really appreciated about the um syllabus that you created for the course was that you were bringing together all of these different thinkers and practitioners to talk about um, kind of like topics that would introduce a critical framework into that architectural school space. So it was really speaker focused and it was different than like a studio course.
1: Yeah, definitely. And yeah, my background would be more in like writing and theory rather than architecture school and practice. So I definitely want to bring that to the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like it was a really um, productive collaboration, too. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, more recently, you did the special issue of Art Papers, which yes. was really beautiful and had a lot of great stuff in it so what was your approach to getting together the pieces that eventually went? yeah
1: out? yeah it's funny with editing things like this because um it just changes so much over time like you have an idea for what it's going to be about and then um contributors come and approach your idea in all these different ways that you couldn't have anticipated which is great and i really love that that happens um yeah, the theme was originally disability and the politics of visibility, but um, so much that I, um, I don't know, so many of the contributors were focused on like um, maybe invisibility or at least ref- refuting like some of the hyper visibility, like a la the freak show that can be super problematic and thinking about disability or um, like Park MacArthur's contribution was sort of a response to her exhibition at MoMA, which uh, was really the... I I would say like the primary piece was an audio tour of the show. That way um, people could have similar experiences of the show and like her contribution didn't have images, but rather we included the stops on the audio tour as a way to think about how to make it accessible to blind and low vision audiences. But yeah, in general, I just loved that it kept getting bigger and bigger instead of like working toward answers Mm -hmm. to these problems. It -hmm. just like expanded them.
0: Yeah. Um, So like one thing I was thinking about with that issue of art papers was that you were kind of like making a field of thinking more apparent um, by bringing all these perspectives together. And um that you know that's a curatorial it's like a a scholarly curatorial practice (laughs) too so what are some of the ways of thinking about disability art that you're seeing emerging now
1: yeah thank you um well one thing with that issue is like a lot of these people are often working together that ended up being included or at least are aware of each other and ended up contributing like multi-author or collaborative things which I think like yeah disability studies has a lot to um is a great model for thinking about like interdependence and things like this and I really appreciated that that was something people wanted to um I don't know do like model as a method and not just a topic
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um in terms of how people how I've seen people thinking about that today it's a good question like I do think there's a sort of growing awareness of just like the accessibility of art spaces, which is especially rough in New York where I've only recently moved. Um, But with that is like some pushback too. Um, I'm a person that is sensitive to strobes and I, there's so infrequently strobe warnings at art events and I in fact find like when I ask people are really defensive and like want to protect their right to use strobes which Mm. um I don't know I don't want to question someone's right to use them necessarily but like I yeah what's I guess one thing that's I really appreciate about disability is like within disability community there's a sense of like hey, I can talk to you about my bodily needs and trust you to hear me, but in a lot of the world, that's, like, bodies are awkward and uncomfortable to talk about, and um, people feel, like, called out if you try to ask for your needs when that's not necessarily your intention.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so do you um, see kind of, like, disability arts culture (laughs) somehow, like, intervening within the broader arts space around that?
1: Yeah, um... I think one thing it's really powerful for like especially in thinking about some of these videos that dealt with closed captions like carolyn lazard's video a recipe for disaster uh, which is an episode of julia child's cooking show um and julia child's like describing most of what she's doing so there's already sort of a visual description component built in but then carolyn um, adds to that and puts the closed captions on it because it was I guess one of the first shows or maybe the first show to have closed captions but then people are actually they're open captions so there were always captions on and then people complained and they're now we don't have open captions on all of our uh, tv shows but then there's it turns into like this manifesto about accessibility in the arts and so what I think that does is it sets like a positive example of like this is what people could do and rather than like as the critic there's a lot of saying like you did this wrong but as an artist like, it's like here's a model of how it could be and i think that's really powerful and can be really inspiring
0: yeah yeah so in these cases so there's like carolyn lazard also liza sylvester who does yeah. like a similar thing we just did an episode with her um the the technique is the use of this available technology as like a space as like a discursive space basically and to populate that with some other kind of discourse um totally so in you know in the example that i talked to eliza about there we had this really interesting conversation because i had watched the video of her show um, so there are all these layers of mediation like I'd watch the video of her show and in the video I could see the screen and hear the sound of what was in the film um, that uh, Liza was c- like kind of critically captioning and then I could see the differences between what the caption said and what the speaker on the screen was saying And when I was talking to her about this, I was like, the speaker on the screen is saying X, and then over here you're saying Y. And she was like, well, I've actually, I don't know what the speaker on the screen is saying because this film is never captioned. And so this is the first time I'm even, like, learning about this disjuncture. So (laughs) there's something really interesting um, and powerful about that, too, that it's not just, like, a direct protest, like about content or something Um, although that does seem to come into it sometimes but it's just about taking up the space that is available and using it to do something else
1: yeah that's a great way to put it i love in the piece caption channel surfing there's a comment i don't know it's like some i think it's like a princess movie or just like some like hetero love story and Liza just comments like he leads the way of course and I (laughs)
0: thought
1: that was one hilarious and two it just sums up like I don't know are your movies so precious and brilliant that you couldn't modify them to be more accommodating like is this what you're clinging on to
0: yeah and that like that um, that kind of like misogyny or whatever is apparent from the relations between bodies on the screen and yeah exactly yeah Um, yeah I love that and I'm looking also at your article in Mouse Magazine or Moose Magazine where you write about these various artists and Carolyn Lazar's um, piece there's like a screenshot of Julia Child's and there is a caption there that says so how's that for a last minute supper party (laughs) and then on the screen it's like like, there's there's this other type of captioning that says, right. then no one gets any image and sound that cannot be disentangled, a suffusion, a cacophony. Um, yeah, so what do you make of that kind of like dual captioning technique?
1: Yeah. So, over the course of the video, first it starts out um, like in this sort of rather standard combination of closed captions and image descriptions. So, like, sounds are described and and the lulls between Julia Child's monologue, which are few and far between because she's kind of talking the whole time. Um, A voice will describe what Julia Child is doing, but it's actually so... Oop! the light just went out. (laughs) It's really hard to fit these descriptions in between these breaks in dialogue. And you can sense the sort of... uh, I don't know, tension or rushness that comes with this constraint. And so then it starts pushing outside of that limit of the amount of time between breaks in the monologue. And then it becomes this total cacophony. And yeah, it's this the layering of the Julia Child and this yeah, manifesto about accessible media that I think is really brilliant.
0: Hmm. So some of that manifesto is like a commentary on the way that the image descriptions are usually done in the spaces between speech.
1: I don't think it names that specifically, but you can, when watching it, you can sense that like they're being forced to fit in these spaces and then they can't fit. And then there's all this illegibility. And then the
0: idea is like,
1: if this is illegible for some people, then let's make it illegible for everyone. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It says uh, no legibility for some, illegibility for all, a sensory failure, a redistribution of violence. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, huh, so, uh, yeah. What else do you want to say about these kind of like, like the politics of captioning as a site for intervention?
1: Yeah. Um in that essay, I have this quote from David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder, who are also part of the course you participated in. Mm. You were, you spoke alongside them, mm. that I really love. And it's, um, and, and Carolyn's video, they talk about, um, there's a line that's like, um, I don't know, something about, like, we don't have to be grateful for an invitation to your party, because your party sucks. <laughs> and <laughs> Um, So, like, the idea of, like, captioning as this act of charity that, like, oh, now you can watch this show on how to cook an omelette. And it's sort of similar to Liza's comment on, like, the sort of hetero love stories, too. But um, there's this quote from David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder about, um, they're talking about neoliberal inclusionism and this idea of getting invited to the party. And they write that, quote disability subjectivities are not just characterized by socially imposed restrictions but in fact productively create new forms of embodied knowledge and collective consciousness and then they talk about the active transformation of life that the alternative corporealities of disability creatively entail Hmm. um and i just yeah like different bodies demand different forms and instead of like oh we have to make a lesser version of that to make it accessible it's like actually we could rethink the whole thing and learn a lot from doing so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's kind of about um, this disability politics of like anti-assimilation too. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that was something that Liza talked about a lot as well. Um, it's like something really interesting that she said was that she, um, and this is in the uh, podcast episode with her, that um as a hard of hearing person who is not part of deaf culture and community, her experience of, some some of her experiences of disability are about estrangement and misfit. And in that way, yeah, um, she relates more to a kind of anti-assimilationist, like queer positioning than uh, like a deaf culture kind of uh, position. Totally.
1: I see that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. I'm thinking about also, like, in Sonara Taylor's book, she talks about, which is Feast of Burden, Animal and Disability Liberation. Um, She talks about, like, she's vegan, I'm vegetarian, and talks about that as being sort of a thing where you're constantly having to ask for accommodations. And a way I sort of see, I don't know, a relationship is... Like, there's such a big difference between the vegetarian option being like, oh, we'll just like take the meat off the burger and you can eat the bread. <laughs> or like, we'll think of it, we'll rethink the burger and put a lovely portobello mushroom in the middle and it's gonna be great. But yeah, this mentality of like the alternative is where we take away or like it's the lesser version rather than an opportunity to
0: recreate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And in a similar vein, like, My friends who are vegans, um, now that the Beyond Meat burger has come out, a lot of them are very resistant to it because they're like, this is the aesthetics of industrial meat agriculture. Why would we want something that bleeds and, you know, like, we can just like keep that violent aesthetic trope and we'll be over here eating our portobello mushrooms.
1: For sure. Mushrooms are great. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, Totally. Um, Yeah, there's so many possibilities, I think, for thinking with like food and eating around access. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So related to this, too, another artist that um, we have talked about and with together, uh, whose work I think touches on a lot of these themes, is Shannon Finnegan. Yes. Um, yeah, so um, is there anything you want to say about Shannon's work, like the uh, alt as poetry or anything like that? Yeah,
1: where to start? I mean, yeah, what a great project those workshops are and uh, thinking about, yeah, how to describe images, especially artworks uh, for web access. I think about, I went to one of those workshops and I think about it all the time and I just wish I had, part of me wants like guidance and answers for how to, to describe images and artworks the right way, but it doesn't work like that.
0: <laughs> what yeah. are the workshops like? Can you kind of take us through it?
1: Yeah, um, basically she's she, like, she and her collaborator, Bojana, I, I believe is her name, Um, I went to one where only Shannon was teaching, but um, she sort of describes like what alt text is, why it matters, um, what the ADA has to say about it and things like this. Um, And then walks through, like, she'll print out a few images, some are of people, some are of artworks and like you get to workshop writing descriptions and sort of compare notes. And it's so, it's always so interesting to see like what things seem obvious and stand out to you and someone else talks about something entirely different, especially with artworks um, and especially abstract ones. I think um, a lot of the sort of standards treat images as like information, which of course they often are, but they're also like aesthetic experiences and these things are a lot harder to point towards at the same time as an art critic, like something I really think it can be really powerful is like a, succinct powerful description of an artwork that makes you yeah see it in a new light or notice things maybe you wouldn't have noticed um another big topic is like how hard it can be to describe people's race and gender and yet how weird it feels to not mention it Mm -hmm. and that's something I think about all the time when I'm writing descriptions and I truly have no answers for
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the exercises that you went through in the workshop to work through some of those questions?
1: Yeah. Um, the, so for the race and gender question, she would like give a picture of a person and you would describe them and it was up to you if you wanted to try to guess or not. Um, and then she would give you um, the description of how that person described that picture of themselves um which sometimes can be like more personal like if you're maybe describing a picture of you on your instagram you might assume like that people know who you are and not say like i am xyz but this is me in a hat or whatever um yeah so you would also see if they chose to describe their race and gender or this sort of more personal tone Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah I mean, yeah, that does raise all sorts of questions because of the identities that are taken as given and neutral that often wouldn't get described, based you know, or depending on the audience and the kind of space that they're in.
1: Totally. I mean, Georgina Klieger writes about this in terms of um, descriptions in movies, and people would describe, especially race, if they see it as like essential to the plot. But of course that varies wildly depending on who's watching and
0: mm-hmm. yeah 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 this this like i i also sometimes teach image description workshops and uh, based on georgina's participatory image description practice and the thing that people always ask about um is race and gender or and there are real differences between when people ask because they're rooted in kind of like a social justice culture where they know to ask for pronouns and that kind of stuff, and when people aren't. And mm-hmm. I've been in conversations, like you know, in the university where I work, about whether we should have image descriptions of, um, you know, faculty or student. Uh, had shots on yeah. the websites and people feel very uncomfortable with um, even self describing their images yeah and or th- Or, like, you know, I went through a university sponsored workshop where we were taught how to create like accessible web content. And when it came to images, the best practice that they said was just to say, this is a photo of so and so and not give any information about them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a second. Like, if I'm looking at a faculty page or a student page and I'm like, wow, everyone here is white. That's, like, really important information to know. Definitely, yeah. That you wouldn't get if you just had image of and then the person's right? Soon, you know? so
1: And, yeah. yeah, the other tricky thing this brings up is, like, as AI is increasingly learning to write these descriptions, like, it's pretty scary to teach machines to see race. and mm-hmm. And, I mean, what does it even mean to, of course, to see it, but, like, to identify based on looking at someone is tricky and yeah the way that that opens us up to like this mass surveillance that can be discriminatory
0: yeah totally like and brings back all these kind of like phrenological and criminal things about exactly identifying facial structures and stuff yeah um yeah so that's like a place where Access and kind of like disability culture and art has the um, opportunity to make an intervention and to like make a clear statement about like access versus surveillance. And that's- Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: And yeah, it brings up like, at least in the art world, like a labor question, like who is writing those descriptions at a time when a lot of small arts institutions don't have- like people devoted to working on access. And increasingly a lot of artists are like when a publication or whomever asks for images will provide the descriptions. Not I don't think it's because it's it should be their job, but it's more like you can't count on the institution to do it for you.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, my lab is curating an exhibition called Crip Ritual that will cool be, um at, in Toronto in 2021 and one of the we're, we're putting out the call kind of with this season of Contra so I'll make sure to send it to you Great, um, please do. but one of the things we decided was that a condition of showing work in that show needed to be that everyone would go through like a design charrette to figure out how to make the presentation of their work more accessible including yeah having the artists themselves write image descriptions, but doing a workshop about how to do that um, and how to caption and all of those kinds of things. So we were kind of trying to figure out this issue of labor about like, you know, who knows best about what is in the image um, or who can most ethically describe it. And um, how do we get like, you know, get away from, this mm-hmm. sort of like uh, you know like standard style of description to that might happen if yeah. one person was doing all of it that, so.
1: That's awesome um, and I believe Shannon's doing a project at BAMP in Canada right now which is like how many multiple people describe an artwork the idea being sometimes these they're presented as this like authorless neutral authoritative thing but to attribute them to people and to show that many people can like emphasize different things and to make that process visible
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's like a, a kind of related practice i think in the sort of social media image description sphere um, that really only i ever encountered disabled people doing this where like they'll share a facebook post and copy paste the previous person's image description with credit. And then sometimes there will be like an editorial note. Like the original image description also didn't say X, Y, and Z. Mm, and so I'm gonna yeah. like add this extra thing to it. And um yeah, I I've been interested to kind of watch how that happens. There's some Facebook groups too where people do participatory image description. Like if you need something described, you can just post it and then yeah. like the whole comments section is various descriptions of that thing. Cool. Yeah, that's. it'll be cool to watch those techniques continue to evolve. Definitely. Yeah. Um, who are artists that you're interested in um, that are kind of like emerging and working in these areas?
1: Yeah. Um, I just finished writing about an artist named Emily Gossiel who um, is blind... Um, but lost her vision while she was in art school. So, like, is yeah, it was trained rather traditionally in art making and art history. Um, and she does a lot of work making. In art school, you learn a technique called blind contour drawings, which is sometimes you like put the paper under the table and you don't look at it at all and you'll focus really intently on your subject. Um, and the idea is to teach you to like draw what you see and not what you know so to focus really closely on what you're drawing and not what your drawing looks like and um yeah she does her own version of that technique based based on touching her subject or remembering them um and uses like a ballpoint pen and newsprint paper so that there's like an indentation and then she um, colors them with crayola crayons that have really descriptive names like Piggy Pink and Almond and Outer Space are some of the colors she's using and it's, yeah, cool how those can be a tool Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and a lot of her subjects are dealing with, like, intimacy and they're pretty silly and, like, her guide dog London who is really beautiful and sweet is often in her work
0: Hmm. I love that I should say, so in your new position at Art in America, um, this is a lot of the work that you're continuing to do, right?
1: Yeah, yes. I run a column called First Look, which is um, yeah, the, usually an artist on the occasion of their first like inclusion in a museum show at this stage. So we did um, another writer who lives in Chicago where Liza lives profiled her for our column in September. Which was great. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on who else. I mean, I wrote about Constantine Zavitsanos in the captions essay with Amala Jibwan, but they had they recently had another show that sort of pushed some of these ideas further. It was really amazing. So um, they let's see, how do I, a lot of their work deals with debt and dependency, like in terms of both money and disability and whatever else, so part of their show were dice, so in gambling you can roll the dice and like get a bunch of money, and um, or not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they made holograms of them, the idea being that holograms, if you cut them in half you get two images instead of one, and the idea is like, we think of like sharing and an interdependency as like giving something away and therefore having less, but it doesn't always work like that. Mm. Um, similarly in 2015 at the new museum, they had like been illegally arrested in a Iraq war protest at the Republican National Convention and the city of New York paid out like, I don't know how much money, but a lot of money <laughs> to the people that had been arrested and They just decided like this is state money or city money. I'm going to give it all away. And so every day in the summer of 2015, they just left a visa gift card at the new museum on this really strange, um, like addition to their admissions desk. That's supposed to make it accessible, but really the the desk is like three or four inches too high to be ADA compliant. And so they just made this drawer that (laughs) sticks out. That is really a silly workaround. Hmm. And, yeah, anyone could just take that money and spend it however they want to go to the museums to get a coffee date. A lot of people got gas with it. Yeah, and then, okay, in their newer show, they had sort of a a monologue talking about these ideas, but it was played under the floor and pitched really low, I think I think like five hertz. I don't know that if I'm saying like the technical stuff about sound, but it was really basically you experience it as a vibration rather than hearing it the idea being that like everyone would have the same experience of the soundtrack that was then captioned. Oh, well, you definitely ran into this attitude all the time, which is like, Oh, if I make something accessible, then I'll have less of whatever resource left for myself. And
0: mm, Yeah. So it's kind of like speaking back to the um, ideas about access and scarcity. Totally. Yeah. Is anything else exciting that's coming up in the work that you're doing in your new job?
1: Um good question. Um I mean, we're thinking about how image descriptions factor into what we do. and it like, in addition to alt text, like we've always been writing our pieces as if they're as if the person reading it isn't gonna see the show. So um, trying to like embed description into the text itself as well as the alt text field. Um, and I'm writing right now about, how various museums are approaching these things. Like the MCA Chicago has a really amazing website for image descriptions for artworks. And you can actually, on the left side of the sidebar, click a button that says like image descriptions on. And therefore, usually they're hidden away in the alt text field and you don't see them unless you're accessing them by a screen reader or have some sort of plugin. But this just turns them on so you experience the whole website like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they have a show by an artist named Mika Rottenberg right now, and they, who's a video artist, and they have versions of all her videos online that you can watch with video or visual descriptions and closed captions from your home, which I think is a really important gesture.
0: That's really cool. Do you know anything about who developed this?
1: I do. There's an Access Consulting Group that they collaborated with, whose name is escaping me but i can send you the name
0: okay yeah great um i think it's also good for people to know that there are access consulting groups that they can and don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel with all of these things and museums are you know like you mentioned before that they're they're still um differential norms around like the quality of access like around digital media and image descriptions and captions and stuff and museums are a place where there's so much experimentation around these things because they Mm. deal with media more than like you know some other kind of institution so it's always really interesting to me to see what people are coming up with
1: yeah, that's a great point. At the same time though, I've been um I have a piece coming out in Future Interior about how like video art has because it's in the museum has inherited like preservation standards from painting and so a lot of times people won't add closed captions because it's like altering the original aesthetic experience even though videos don't have a original in the same way that a painting does. So yeah, there's these two tensions that are still being worked out.
0: Do you mean like with um kind of like archival footage and stuff like that? Or yeah, other kinds of video?
1: Like a video art like a video made by an artist that is in a museum collection.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Even
1: though cool. yeah. Some of them were I mean, if you read their writing at the time of say around the 70s, they're all about like radical access, which means something different, which is like getting outside of the museum.
0: Mhm then um for a museum to show that work and to add captions onto it would be thought of as the equivalent of like writing on a painting or yeah right yeah but
1: it isn't oh um and one other thing i wanted to add about the access consulting groups um i've talked to quite a few disabled artists who like find that they're invited to give like inspirational talks or like basically do consulting work a lot more than they are to like be artists and and show artworks Mm -hmm. um, which is important work and like isn't a bad thing but yeah I don't know it's interesting the kind of labor that people expect from disabled people
0: yeah absolutely um and the kinds of labor that have like easy funding streams attached to them totally like in that way that like consulting can become like a day job sort of thing for Totally that like supports other kinds of work. Yeah. And there's the complication too, and this comes up in architecture, which I'm sure you know, that there are access experts, but they're not their knowledge base is not always access centered or like disability justice centered. So
1: it's like how to not get sued. Here's the code.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there are plenty of firms that have like ADA compliance experts and that kind of thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are staffed by disabled people or, or like, Yeah, you know, people Mm -hmm. who are thinking critically about accessibility and stuff. So it's kind of, but in that way that you're just saying, like, um, unless disabled people are making the choice to become access experts, the there is often this like expectation or burden that.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. Totally. I hope they're getting paid a consultant's rate and not an artist's rate to do that work.
0: (laughs) Yes. Oh, great point too. And that's like an important thing for people to know. Like if anyone is like listening to this podcast or reading the transcript and is like, I'm gonna reach out to Shannon Finnegan and set up like a workshop. You should pay that person the consultant rate and not the artist rate, even though the workshop is Um, both a work of art and a, a type of activism definitely yeah yeah Great. Um, so cool. I have one last question um, yeah. about... So we've had a lot of disabled artists and people working kind of the intersection of disability arts and culture and design on the podcast this season. So what are some of the future directions that you see um, for disability arts?
1: Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I really do think that there's like gonna be a lot more of rethinking quote-unquote audio visual media to just like center other senses like the mm-hmm. constantina's avizano sort of vibrating floor sound mm-hmm. i was talking about i think yeah that happened in september um and tina is the one doing the voiceover on carolyn's um recipe for disaster video um yeah i think there should, and there's going to be a lot more rethinking how to make video and quote unquote audiovisual media accessible, like from the fabric of the original, rather than through all these add-ons after the fact.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. It's very exciting. It's also yeah. uh, a good um, nod towards some of the work that we're doing in the lab going forward with the podcast, to really asking like why does a podcast have to be primarily an audio format and yeah what would it mean to start with other types of like sensory inputs and call that a podcast too cool yeah
1: can't wait to see experience yeah totally (laughs) yeah
0: um well thank you so much emily this has been wonderful
1: yeah likewise thanks for having me it's always great to chat
0: You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.